Amen. Y'all doing all right tonight? Yeah. I'd like to get a couple of acknowledgments in here. First, I'd like to thank the Remnant Church and Pastor Hutchinson for also New Life and Another very special marker we've just hit. Uh, Ohad Shaul, the bear Jew, has been with us for exactly one year. So it's obviously December 31st, and it is uh, New Year's. It's quite a moment uh, for us. The pastors and the elders uh, plan to speak together tonight. Uh, we were going to do it in a team, and we were going to do it in a team and rotate right up until 10 minutes ago. I believe the Lord spoke something to me, and I have never been one to let grass grow under my feet. Um, I think that I'm supposed to deliver a word uh, to you, and uh, it may not be as articulate as I had hoped that it would be, but I promise that it will be heartfelt and... Uh, is the direction the Lord is sending us. Uh, we came here in 2002, and our very first bonfire was around a fire like the one back there. Uh, there were less than eight people at our very first one. I remember asking them what the Lord had done in their life that year, and distinctly, uh, I remember even, even painfully, uh, some of the responses were lackluster. After a year of work, uh, one of the young ladies said nothing. God hadn't done a thing in my life this year. And in classic Stevens fashion, I rebuked her out of her seat, and she's still here after 18 years. So that's, that's good news. I, I pray that, that the Lord's done something since. Um, you know, about all the time you get as, as a parent, is 18 years. If you haven't done your work in 18 years, you have to stand on whatever it is that you've done. Any parents can feel that out there? It's a nervous thing, but it's also a kind of graduation day. They're elevated from an adolescent to an adult. Your work stops being a supervisor and a director and moves to an advisor. Then they have children, and that gets even scarier. Well, when I came here, I didn't even have all of my children. When we came here, uh, we didn't we didn't have any children even in elementary school. Well, after five children, um, we we now have six grandkids. A lot's changed from 2020 to 2002. And it's become very clear to me that it is time for uh, a real transition. We've been talking about it for some time. Uh, it's been in progress, kind of like you start transitioning when someone is 13 and you give them more responsibility and you start to back off. And when they're 16, man, they're driving and you... You are terrified, and your insurance rates go up, and, and they are maturing, and they are growing, and you are letting go and letting go. Well, we've reached our 18th birthday, and uh, what the Stevens have to contribute 
to this foundation, to this work, is done. And uh, we are elevating our priesthood. Uh, we are laying aside our work as pastors. Um, at this point, rather than pastor in a team and do the things that you've become accustomed to, it's very clear to me that we are to transition to elders. And what that looks like is kind of like a grandparent to parents. Uh, this church is pastored by Matthew Piro and Wade Sutherland. It is fully in their hands in every way, shape, or form. Uh, the direction of it is fully with them. We were sent here. Galatians 1.1 kind of sent here. Romans 1.1 kind of sent here. Sent by God. Our job was to lay a foundation. Romans 15.20 uh, was kind of one of our goals. We were not building on someone else's foundation. We came here to build one. 1 Corinthians 3.10 style, that foundation has been laid. Uh, we got prophecies about it tonight, and it's time for it to double. That will be the work of these men. Um, it has been built on the foundation of the apostles, Ephesians 2.14 style. There's nobody who looks at our ministry through a biblical eye that could see it any other way. And in light of 1 Timothy 3.14 and 15, we know how things ought to be in the church. But it is time for us to take our hand off of that plow and focus on pastoring the, the pastors of the One Association, which includes those who are becoming pastors in the One Association. Uh, it's unreasonable to expect or to think that we will be in Turkey or in Chicago or in Victoria and continue to have our hand on the pulse of what is happening here. But what we will be able to do is listen with an ear to the ground for what these pastors might need, the same way any elder would do, and minister to them. Um, we came, we laid a foundation, and we raised up leaders. That's Acts 14, 21 through 23. There were no other pastors when we got here. There were no other elders when we got here. But there are now very competent pastors, pastors that are better than the original pastors, and there are a pretty fantastic and growing group of elders. <laughs> Galatians 6.16 style, our hope and our job will be to continue to help oversee, but not direct in daily affairs. Um, that changes our relationship. The word uh, apostle is an interesting one in the Bible, and uh, it's not one that people should apply lightly or uh, frivolously. I would simply say this, that 1 Corinthians 9-2 would seem to indicate that you can be something to one group of people and not another. It would indicate that to some people you could be viewed a certain way, and other people not view you that way. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 would indicate that it has to be a supernatural relationship that could never be assumed. We don't need titles. We don't need things to define or describe our relationship. And yet, I think it's important sometimes to help define them and why God is doing what He is doing. Um, and I, I would like you to consider 
viewing uh, us as elders, like Charlie and Joe, like Boz and Natalie, like John and Joy, and begin thinking about this church is pastored by uh, Wade Sutherland and Matthew Piro themselves. Um, we are only assistants at this point. As this came to me, and it came to me during worship, <laughs> and the break that y'all got was so that I could explain to the other men what I thought the Lord was doing, uh, it suddenly became clear to me why we are in the series that we're in right now. Uh, we have been talking about continual cultivation. I want you to know that the words that we teach, uh, they come right out of our own lives. So if you have felt kind of chewed up by them, understand we are chewed up by them. Uh, that should not be on the screen. Look for display only. Um, I, and I, I want you to know that what is going on is I received a word for the pastors. So I went to the pastors and I talked to them about cultivation. And I talked to them about how to... Uh, conceive what God put in your heart. And I talked to them next about how to elevate our priesthood. And then I talked to them about how to purify the priesthood. And then I talked to them about how it perpetuates through the generations. Once we were all on the same page, I met with the elders for three days and, and we did that. And it was our plan to share with you everything that we learned. But what I realized in worship is I'm doing that because my work in this congregation has to change. Uh, it has to be set aside. It's now in their hands. That's what perpetuating the priesthood is. And the admonitions, even very strong ones to our elders, uh, addressing their hearts and addressing ours and the, uh, and the pastors and their hearts. It's because God cares very much about this work. Amen. Amen. Now I want to bring that word to you. I want to put it into perspective for you because there are now two pastors and there will be a third. Um, it'll come from our congregation. And at some point, one of these two pastors will probably move into eldership and there'll be a second pastor from our congregation. Eventually, all three will be doing something else and there'll be three new pastors from the congregation because God wants what we are doing to last through the generations. And you Amen. have a priesthood. So our first message was called Continual Cultivation. And um, that is something that we've been talking about. It is important to all of you to continually cultivate your hearts so that God can bring out of it what he wants to bring out of it. It is a wrong thought to think that you have one kind of soil in your heart. You actually have all four kinds. Were any of you surprised to hear that as we were preaching yeah. it? Yeah. But I want to put it into perspective for you. Matthew 13, 44 is the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. You know, the first person to ever bring this to me in a new light was Pastor Hutchinson. That's how the kingdom works. 
you raise up disciples and they end up teaching you as they move through their stations of ministry. And even the apostles in the Bible referred to themselves as elders when other men were in charge of churches that they may have planted. I want you to understand that the Lord loves you. That the Lord purchased your whole life. In the same way that a man purchases a whole field. But what the Lord treasures in each of you and what you should treasure are the parts of that field that have been cultivated in obedience to produce the kingdom. He bought it all. He bought the good. He bought the bad. He bought the ugly. He bought the unrevealed rocks. He bought the weeds that are growing in your soul. He bought it all. But what he wants is treasure. Now, some of you immediately will think, Oh, God, my, my field is not perfect. You knew it wasn't perfect before you came here. <laughs> the point is, is he bought you in the worst shape you had ever been in. Yeah. It was just the first time you realized it. And because he saw that value in you, you want to do something. The Lord, as the purchaser, it was required of him. To give all he had, and he did. He gave the very best for you. He gave the precious life of his son. Now you as the field, it's required for you to give all you have back to the purchaser. And he deserves more than the initial treasure that you got saved with. Oh, yeah. Amen. He deserves you to cultivate every area of your heart in every way. This was my word to the pastors. It was also my word to the elders, and now it's my word to you. If there was one treasure in you, if you were the field and there was one treasure, it was always God's intention that that field itself become a treasured possession because more was discovered, more was made. The very first time you showed faith in Him, He treasures that. But He bought all of the nasty areas you don't show faith in. He bought all of the nasty, unrefined areas. And now His Spirit and His Word are helping to cultivate you so that you can identify them. So you can turn over the soil of your heart and become an ever-increasing treasure in His sight. Is that what you want? Yes. In Luke 8, 11, we went through these things. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the Word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. The problem is, is that's true after somebody's dead and you can look back. But it is also true of somebody in the kingdom every time a word is given that doesn't sink down into your heart and produce fruit. It's not just the lost that have hard paths. Where are the hard paths in your life? You know where they're at. They're the ones that you're always feeling walked on. They're the ones that when we get to that area, the word has trouble penetrating because it hurts. You want to protect it. By the way, which field will you ever find that doesn't have more than one kind of soil in it? And how can you get to the field if there's no path to walk on? All you have to do is think through this clearly and you'll realize every soil mentioned here is you. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Well, you may be saved. You may be eternally saved. But you weren't saved from what that specific word was supposed to save you from. And you have to go through a cycle. 
to get free. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. That can be true of a whole man's life, but it can also be true of each one of our lives. It can be true when you get excited because you heard the word of God and you're like, man, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Pastor, I'm going to do it. And you go after it for about two months. And then it fades out and you don't even realize you've been unfaithful to it. The tree just fell over. Who here does that not apply to? Of course it applies to us. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked. By life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. That can be true of a lost person, a person who who gets born again and falls away, but it is also true of men who start off in any area, and they're making progress, and they're growing, and they look like they're going to mature, but something else is growing with them. And slowly it chokes the life out of what they're doing. Anybody that's ever started a church, man, are there life's worries? Are are there concerns about provision? And if you're not careful, it will choke out the maturity of your work. I want you to know we've labored at this 18 years. And it hasn't been choked out. I want the pastors here that I'm looking at. I want you to know if you think you can do this in two, three, four, five years, you're wrong. You can't raise a child from infancy to adulthood in five years. And you can't do it with a church. It takes time. And you have to prepare for that or something will choke you out. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Throughout this, you can see that God is the sower and the seed is God's word. The soils are the areas and conditions of your heart as a whole field. A field has different soils in it. You know the condition of the soil of your heart through one interaction and one interaction only. You know it by the response of your heart to a specific word that you get. You get a word on grace and you love it because that area of your heart's been cultivated and that's not wrong. But when you get a correction about something, what does your heart do with it? Well, if it's about finances, I do good. Pastor, you're right, I need help in that. But if it's about raising my children, you better stand back. Well, now you know the condition of your field in that area. And you have to cultivate. This was the word to the pastors. This was the word to the elders. They are working on it. It's a lifetime pursuit. Please don't think that at any level of ministry, your your soil is just noble. It might be more noble than it was. It might be more noble than somebody else's, but it's not done. It's not done until you are resurrected and standing with the king. Proverbs 9, 8 tells us something. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Anybody ever had that experience? Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Your response to a rebuke to the word To the seed, it shows the condition of your heart in that area. The hard path in your heart repels. It mocks the life-giving seed in that area of your field. Dealing with a spouse, raising your children, handling your finances, how you should work as an employee with your employer. You may have noble soil in one area, rocky soil in another, and thorny soil in another. 
You might even have hard path. All of those conditions are inside each of us. You remember when we preached on this? We need to keep preaching on it. This is going to be something that we're going to develop for the rest of our, our lives. Amen. And if you ever think that your development has stopped, you have stopped. That's, that is the problem. Hebrews 3.13 teaches us that sin hardens a believer's heart. Not hardens the lost heart. Their heart's already hard. Hardens a believer's heart. So that he's deceived and the word is unfruitful in that section of the field. Our goal as believers at every stage of our ministry is to cultivate the soil of our heart for whatever new God has planted, for whatever he wants to grow in you. And every believer says yes until you're confronted with the condition of your heart. And then it's our tendency to proclaim our heart pure, to proclaim our heart good and noble while our reaction to the word is showing us that it needs work. Somebody say, I need work. I need work. See, just admitting that helps so much. Now you're freed from the bondage of needing to present as perfected. And you can allow people to see progress in you and be encouraged by that. Hosea 10, 12 says, sow for yourself righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. This was said to a people that love the Lord. Break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until He comes and showers righteousness on you. We are endeavoring to break up our unplowed ground using the Word, which shows us the condition of our soil by our response. My prayer, the prayer of the pastors, the prayer of the elders. We had an actual battle royal, all of us. We went to town to get to the soil condition of our hearts in every area, especially the soil behind you that you don't see as well. Our prayer is incline our hearts, Lord. Show me the thoughts and the attitudes of my soil that I don't see. Use others to bring the word to me. Let me read your word and challenge it, Lord, so that I don't have any area that I am unfruitful and unproductive in. Shouldn't that be the cry of every believer? Yes. Would it surprise you to know that many times pastors can get really good at making sure that you know that's your condition, but they forget that it's theirs? Would it surprise you to know that elders can get used to giving advice and have a hard time taking it? We're going to have to continually cultivate the soil of our hearts. That's for the rest of our lives. The rocky areas of soil in our fields is characterized by the word not taking root or form hold. In other words, the results of the word are temporary, unsustainable, momentary, or just not consistent enough to produce lasting fruit. Have any of you made a New Year's resolution in years past? Have you had that New Year's resolution multiple years but never completed it? That's rocky soil. It's not just a lack of willpower. If we're talking about kingdom things, it means that the soil of your heart was ready to receive it. You even proclaimed it. You even started to walk in it. But somehow or another, it didn't permeate the soil. It wasn't worked into it in a way that produced lasting change in your life. That's rocky soil. I showed y'all a picture the other day. Yes, this picture. This is the result of inhibited downward growth. But boy, it looked good for a while, didn't it? 
We can tend to want to compensate on the outside. Lots of, I am following you. I do want the word. I want this. But it shows when it's rocky soil that you don't follow through with it. This is not a you problem. This is an all human beings problem. And when we recognize it, do you, does anybody want to be this tree that is toppled over? No. No, but it looked beautiful for a while. I showed you this picture in one of our other messages. Test yourself. Does your outer life look more impressive than your inward thoughts? Man, that is a great question. Do you show up? Hey, man, how are things? They're great. We are just blessed. But inwardly, that, that is not what you were thinking before they were asked. That's rocky soil. And we have to cultivate it. We can have such a desire to look better than we are, it keeps us from changing inside in a way that produces something on the outside. Every Christian should want to look like Christ. Every Christian is disappointed when you find out you're failing to look like Christ in an area. But what you do with it from there, it determines whether or not you have a rock in the way, or you can dig as deep as you want into the soil. And you have to identify what those areas are. The Word helps you do that. Our next one, good growth, we said, is proportional growth. Look at the way this is said. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Does it surprise you to know that the Lord would like you to be healthy? That's kind of a surprise to me. I'm a drinker, a smoker. Many times in my life I've been 300 pounds. I have de-emphasized that forever. And I've de-emphasized it because it is more important to grow spiritually than the way you look outwardly. Until you go to Peru and you can't climb the mountain that God has called you to climb. Then you start to go, okay, well if I had to overemphasize one, praise God, at least I got it right. Righteousness is godly for all things. But it's not very righteous to not be able to do what God called me to do. So I've gone retro in every way. A new phase has begun. It requires more. We are elevating that more will be required of these men. More will be required of the elders and more is required of me. And we're doing everything that we know how to prepare for it and we're telling you to do the same. Amen. More is being required of you. That's not, oh God, I can't do it. It's I need downward growth. He wants things to go well with you, but he wants your health and circumstances to only go as well as your soul is getting along well. That's what good soil looks like. You have a responsibility to cultivate your field, to remove rocks that inhibit the word from taking root in these areas of your field. I'm saying these things more than once because they need to be said many times. We're recording this message in a backyard bonfire because in the years to come, every pastor that comes out of this group needs to know this applies to them as much in year 30 as it did in year 3. It never stops. God will continue to bring circumstances. Lately, we've been learning how to handle death. We've been learning how to handle difficult situations. It causes you to toil in the soil of your heart. But it's necessary. The thorny or the weed-infested soil was the area of your field that is fertile. You're surprised to find out that fertile soil grows weeds, but it does. In fact, you find out everything wants to grow in a, in a, help, in a, a field that is doing well. The thing is, 
In fertile soil, the word grows well, but it can have competitors. The problem is, is that the love of the kingdom is being competed with by the love of other things. It doesn't... How many believers really love the Lord and they're really striving after Him and they really want to accomplish things for Him? The thing is, is that there are other things that they also want to do. See, it would be easy to just put this as a category of people, but I bet it's true in many areas of your life. The Bible even names them for us. Worries. It's a good thing all of you are free of worries, right? So you know the word is true. You set out to accomplish something, but you have fears and insecurities that are growing right along with it. Called to sing. You're called to worship. Called to lead people. But you are so self-conscious that you forget to be God-conscious, and it's growing. Called to preach the word. Called to counsel. But you feel like your education wasn't that good, and that insecurity is growing. See, these things will choke out what God called you to do. Riches. When you hear that, you might think of Melania Trump or something. I don't know. What if what we're talking about is just concern for provisions? I want to do something for the Lord, but the thing is me. I can't. I can't do nothing. I have no money. I've heard it in every country in the world. You have to be so consumed with what God has planted in your heart and that the Spirit is overshadowing that you recognize He can speak your provision into existence out of nowhere. And it's so easy to say. But man, do you have to cultivate your heart to get it to be true. Pleasures. How many of us have competing pleasures? Meaning that you love to worship the Lord, but you could trade it for, you know, a good movie. Yeah, it's very quiet. Would you be surprised to know that pastors are no different? You can get used to preaching a meeting and and getting something for that meeting and serving God by studying for that meeting. And you can't wait for the meeting to be over so you can Netflix. And you Netflix so much that the next morning you skip your personal reading time. Because after all, I'll get to it when I study for them. Man, You'll get choked out like that. Get fascinated with taking vacations because ministry is so hard. There's so many things that never change from day one in the kingdom to day thousand in the kingdom. And the extent to which we master them determines the height to want this ministry to continue to do well. I know that the pastors will do well. I know that the elders will do well. And I gave them the same word. For you to do well, you will have to take the seed that they give and you have to cultivate it into the soil of your heart. Did you know that Hebrews 6 pronounces a very special blessing? Hebrews 6 says that when a field drinks the rain from heaven and it produces a crop, it's blessed. But if it's drinking that rain from heaven and what it produces is thorns and thistles, you get a very special curse. Tell me that that doesn't relate to us. See, the Lord began dealing with me about these things, and I took it straight to our leaders, and I didn't know why. I was like, you know, I got kind of an interesting word for us. It's going to hurt. We all cried. We spent three days together. We worked through this and the rest of what I'm going to tell you. And then I was like, hey, guys, y'all, uh, you want to go share it with the elders? 
Oh, sure, God sent them all everywhere. <laughs> End up sharing it with the elders. It hurt their feelings as much as it hurts your feelings to hear, and it is required of us. Amen. Thorny soil, it does something. It chokes the word. I want to show you that. The word is the thorns or the weeds, the competing pleasures, the competing worries, they overpower what the word is doing in you. They suffocate it. We have to be on guard against this. In contrast, the noble soil, the noble soil, it has a lot in, in common with the thorny soil. It hears the word, the word is in it, the, the word starts to grow. But it has this word for retain. The noble soil re hears the word, retains the word. That is the opposite of being choked out. This word literally means instead of being choked, it suppresses everything that is coming against what the word is now showing you. That is every single believer. You have a choice to have competing interests choking out what God wants to do in you or to let what God is doing in you choke out everything else. Man, I'd ask you how you were doing with that, but I want you to hear the rest of the message. When you're examining an area of your field as to whether it is weed infested or noble, it has to do with whether or not you are choking out every competing interest or other things are beginning to suffocate the call of God in an area of your life. When you think about this, perhaps you could think about it simply as, is something stifling my productivity in the kingdom? Or is the word being retained so that it is suppressing every priority that I have that didn't come from God? Now tell me you're passing that test perfectly. Noble soil not only hears the word, it retains the word, it perseveres in the word, and it produces the actions God wants and does it consistently. It is the defining feature of noble soil. Tell me anybody in here has all noble soil. That would mean you have mastered everything that God has ever spoken to you and it is so permanently a part of the fabric of your life that has no competitors. Of course that's not true. Because you're a very treasured field. And there are parts of you that God bought all of you just to get. But He wants it to grow. He wants it to expand. That's true in year one of your Christian faith, year five of your discipleship, year one of your ministry, and it's true in the last year of your eldership. Our job is to continually cultivate our soil. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Even the Bereans were said to have more noble soil than the Thessalonians, but think about the way it said. Did they have noble soil? Before you answer, let me not trap you. No. They had more noble soil. They had the same field problem you have. It had hard paths in it. It had rocks in it. It had weeds in it. But more of it was noble than the Thessalonians. That's how Christians are. We look and go, well, oh, this one's doing better than that one. We like him. He's noble. Well, he's noble in the area that you just examined. But I promise he has further to go. But God bought the whole field because he loves you. See, that really is what is at stake here. As we move through these words, and we're going to, the, the thing to keep in mind is he loved you yesterday. 
He loves you today. And His love is compelling you towards something tomorrow. We are becoming something. We're elevating our priesthood. Amen. In the message cultivated to conception, it was a brief New Year's Eve, not New Year's Eve, that's tonight, Christmas Eve message. We started with the assumption that you had cultivated the soil of your heart enough for the Word to get buried in it. But who can make anything grow? See, it is your job to cultivate the soil of your heart, but only God can make something grow. We examined the initial barrenness of cultivated women. Especially cultivated, somebody say cultivated. Cultivated. Women. We, we looked at Sarah. Sarah was a cultivated woman. She loved the Lord for many years. Rebecca, Rachel, Manoah's wife, Hannah, Elizabeth, and even Mary. And we saw that in their lives they had to continually cultivate. But it was more than that. You can't make something grow. You can work to bury it in your heart. You can work to eliminate its competitors, but you can't make it grow. We looked at 1 Corinthians 3.7, which said only God can make it grow. Are you hiding the Word in an area of your heart and you're trying to pack it in there, but you're not seeing any progress? You have to position your life in a way that God can overshadow. It requires the reign of His Spirit. It requires His supernatural work. A pastor can work himself to death trying to perfect a sheep, but he can't do it. He can only do the part of it he's responsible for, and the living God, Spirit, has to overshadow them. The best thing that we can do is teach people to cultivate their hearts and position their lives in a way that God's Spirit overshadows everything else. See, there are some things you simply can't fix through your hard work. There are some things that you can't make happen. How many of you have been praying for years for somebody to get born again? If you could beat that seed into their heart, you'd have fought every day. I learned that from Charlie Brown. Something supernatural has to happen. So in addition to cultivating, we started talking about conceiving of the Holy Ghost. Being born of something of God. We did that because we noticed that when His shadow overpositions, overshadows your position, something supernatural happens. As a church, we began to talk about putting ourselves in the shadow of the Almighty. I've done everything that I know how to do for this congregation. I've I spent 18 years doing it. What still has to be done will become their work. But I'm trusting that God will overshadow it and He will bless it. How many things are like that in your life? You pack in there, you remove rocks, you tear down weeds, but you still don't quite see what you were hoping to see. Well, God's Spirit has to do the rest. Sunday, we looked at cultivated Kohanim and a chief priesthood. Our unofficial title was Elevating the Priesthood. We looked at every area of the Tanakh and the Newer Testament, which has kind of become our custom. Do you know that was not our custom when we started? When we started, we were as doing as well in ministry as we knew how to do. Our hearts were as pure as we knew how to make them. Looking back, I can see that they were still juvenile and still had all kind of problems. I used to play ping pong for three hours after a service with many of you. We used to record 
the Survivor Series so that after Wednesday night church, we could go watch it together. Now that seems like just a juvenile thing to do, but you know what? God was still blessing us because He loved us then. He loves us now, and He loves what we will be becoming tomorrow. We didn't know. We've had to grow. We've had to progress. We're going to continue to do that. We looked at Revelation in the first chapter. We know that Revelation used the phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come about Jesus himself. And we began to see that there is a man that we were. And the Lord loved him. Not the lost man. The saved version of you. He loved him, but he was still incomplete and had to be cultivated. We looked at the man we are today and said, you know what? I'm still incomplete and have to be cultivated. And he loves me still. And his love is compelling me to become everything that he tells me to be. And we began going, man, we have to elevate our priesthood. So we identified behaviors and went, look, you can do that and the Lord will still love you, but you can't elevate your ministry like that. We want to elevate the ministry. The Lord loves every level of ministry and He is calling us to elevate our priesthood in our lives. You know what's interesting? I was sharing this with the pastors. Thinking, you pastors, you need to elevate your ministry. And I didn't realize the Lord was causing me to take a step until we were sitting right here worshiping. How long does it take you when the Lord is telling you to take a step? To take it. Say, well, not much is at stake. No, it's just 18 years of my life. And yet I can look and see he has prepared it at every turn. We've been talking about hands off of plows, about completing tasks, and about these things for years. And yet, when I prayed with the pastors right back here about doing this, they could feel me trembling. Trembling, but moving forward anyway. We have to elevate our priesthood. We realized that the Kohenim had extremely devoted standards regarding the way they lived. It came down to Kohenim could... The way that they married was different than every other Israelite. The way that they handled death, even of close relatives, was different than every other Israelite. We marveled at the standard of the priesthood in Israel. And then we examined Leviticus 21, and we discovered that the chief priests, those that had become more than just Kohenim, they had even greater responsibility, greater levels of devotion. Of course, they had greater levels of privilege, too. They had greater access to His presence, too. And we began to talk about what it would mean to elevate our priesthood. We began to realize that if you're going to elevate your priesthood, it only comes through elevating your devotion to the Lord. More is required of those that have been given more. We looked at a Kohen could marry a widow, but a chief Kohen could only marry a virgin. That seems unreasonable to me. She didn't do anything wrong. That's beside the point. God simply, among non-sinful behaviors, says, hey, at this level of ministry, that's no longer productive. You have to move to a new level of ministry. That's incredible when you think about it. You might have enjoyed woodworking all of your life, but woodworking is suddenly in the way of God's priority for your life, and you've got to let it go. And you say, but woodworking's not sin. No, it's not. 
unless it's in the way of what God is calling you towards. We have to elevate our ministries. The major takeaways from this message, which I think are there to be displayed, are those that are devoted to the Lord are anointed in special ways. And those that are anointed in special ways must grow in special devotion. Jim, read that out loud. You know, that's a pretty sentence. But it's difficult to do. Do you want more of His love in your life? More of His anointing in your life? More of His power in your life? Have you ever sang that song? Well, then He wants more devotion in your life. And the more devotion you show Him, the more that Holy Spirit power will reign upon you to cause growth that nobody could cause but Him. Another way to put this is those that want to minister at higher levels must show higher levels of devotion to that ministry. Say, oh, pastor, I, I want to be in full-time ministry. Then be in full-time ministry now while you work. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I just can't. There's not enough hours. No, there's not enough devotion. I spent decades doing both. Oh, well, you were younger. Yeah, well, let's not complain about where God has decided to elevate us. Yeah. We've been sitting around going, you know, I didn't ask for this. That's come up. So we're talking to the pastors about higher level of devotion. We're thinking, I didn't ask for this. Talk to the elders about it. They're like, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't ambitious for this. I, yeah, you got nothing to do with it. He called it. He bought the whole field. He has the right to choose the kind of treasure he wants out of it. Say, but it's hard. Be careful what you say. We must not treat the work of the Lord like it's a burden. Amen. That would say that his work is contemptible. It has to be a joy. You say, but it's hard. Well, then it's a hard joy. We actually believe that LCM is being called to elevate our level of priesthood from an already, say already, already high standard of a Kohen to the level of chief priest. To do that, we have to leave dead, unproductive areas of our lives behind so that we can show more devotion. Well, sometimes a dead, unproductive area is just an area that you've enjoyed, that has been fruitful, but it's not where God has you working right now. If I stay doing what I have always done, I can't do the things that he's telling me to do. Everyone will remember this admonition from Malachi on Sunday. Reverence for God above all else. Tonight we're going to be back on that subject. Reverence for God above all else. That is so easy to proclaim with your mouth. Is his work, his name... His reputation more important to you than anything else. Oh yes, pastor. You need to examine and make sure that's true. Because the perception of your relatives during a difficult time can take precedence over his name. The social pressure of ministering in a situation with a bunch of compromisers. It can take reverence over his name. Working in a place can take reverence over his name. Your desire to keep your baby fed can take reverence away from his name. <coughs> Christians have been put in unimaginable situations through the centuries. For the four, first four centuries of our faith, the expectation was a gruesome murderdom. 
And the leaders of the church had to actually tell the people, listen, save your life if you can, because we need you. They actually had to do that. Now we so much live for this world that we act like it's a tragedy when somebody dies. That is not reverence for God's name. Seems like every moment we're hearing somebody is going to be with the Lord. And everybody's first response is to burst out in tears. I understand. Cry. But through your tears, smile and show confidence that what God's Word has said is true. If we don't do that, how can we say we reverence His name? It's funny that the Lord began sharing this with us, and then people started dying. It's almost like He loves us. On the way back from the funeral, I found out that another friend who loves the Lord died. I was listening to Justin and Judah's message from just a couple weeks ago. Where shockingly, they were talking about our God being the God of the living. And Abraham very much being interactive with what was going on on earth. And people even speaking to him in the kingdom that surrounds us. He was correcting them even then. And they revealed to us that Abraham only sees his promise fulfilled as his children do. Nobody that loves the Lord is actually gone. Do you actually believe that? Do your actions show that you believe that? See, that's everything. If you can't take your stand there, you're not actually standing. You're just pretending. We have to cultivate this in our hearts. We have to change the way that we live in a fallen society. And by fallen society, I'm talking to you about the churches that are around us. They don't understand. They don't live like this. But that is not what LCM is, and that is not the foundation stone of this work. This work is defined by the Word of God. And we have been living it for 18 years, and it is time for maturity in these areas. All of His name. We looked and said, man, I I have all of His name. Really? Do you think everything He tells you to do is awesome? Because you don't have all of His name in any area that you don't think what He told you to do is Awesome! The Lord asked me to do this. Then you don't have all for His name. That's a good word. Tell me that there's not room for improvement. Of course there is. Yeah, yeah. Nothing false on our lips and true instruction sounded like the same thing. They're not. True instruction is sharing what God said to say. Things that are false on your lips are all the balancing statements that we feel like we need to make because we think what God said is just too difficult. We want to elevate our priesthood. We ought not have a problem looking at somebody and say, hey, that's sin. Without going, but I love you and you have a nice sweater and man, your hair's good looking too. Well, I just need to, need to give them some encouragement. Did God tell you to or was it supposed to sit on their heart? Did you just wash away with one hand the correction you gave with the other? This was the word to the pastors and then the word to the elders. And now it's the word to you. Because we have to elevate our priesthood. Standing in shalom and uprightness. Emotionally. Physically. Spiritually. Under the yoke of God's kingdom. Whether we're dealing with Him or we're dealing with our fellow man. That's quite a task. You might spend your whole life cultivating your field to make sure that's true. Is your every action aimed at turning people from their sin? Not listening to it. Not accommodating it. 
not disapproving of it, turning them from it. See, this is what is required to elevate your priesthood. Preserving knowledge. To preserve knowledge is like preserving the image of God. Never, never misrepresenting Him. Never uh, allowing something untrue to go unchecked about Him. Man, this takes work. Tonight, we're going to talk to you about curing the Kohanim and purifying the priesthood. And then Sunday, these pastors are going to talk to you about a perpetual priesthood. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is that our king has been faithful to us. He knew this transition was coming. And he desires more treasure out of your field. In fact, he desires the whole field to be what what Exodus 19 calls his treasured possession. He bought it while it wasn't. Because he saw something that he could make treasure in it. But now he's asking you to make the whole field a treasure. Do you want to be treasured? Yes. Yes. Hebrews 11.1 1 in the ESV is something that I, tonight I'm going to call the Eric Stevens version. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. I don't mind telling you that the reason our ministry has succeeded is because I have convictions that most men don't. I don't mind telling you. When I'm around them, I can see that they don't. They are no more sure of the things that they say they're hoping for than a man on the moon. And you can tell because of their actions. You fall apart when things don't go right? How assured can you be of something that you hope for? We have to develop the word in the soil of our hearts in a way that makes us absolutely sure of what it will produce. And those show up as godly, mature convictions. We've been talking about them for two years. You know where your convictions are because they don't move for anyone. They don't move at any time. God said it, it has settled it, and it is now non-negotiable for you. Do you know what the Bible actually calls what I'm saying? Faith. That's what the Bible calls it. The world can call it all kind of things. George Michael can sing about it in a song. But it's not what the Bible calls faith. See, it's important that we cultivate our hearts, that we show actual convictions. Convictions that don't move. Convictions that don't compromise. That's how this work began, and that's how this work will be perpetuated. We have an assurance from the Lord. He is making us into a kingdom of priests. What is He making you? Kingdom of priests. How we handle the convictions He is giving us will determine the elevation of our ministry. As we talk about purifying the priesthood tonight, we're headed somewhere. Sunday, we will talk about a purified priesthood that God wants to perpetuate. It's going to last through an eternity. You're seeing it go from one generation to another, and you will see it go right on down the line. It's not based on our genetics. It's based on the way we adhere to the convictions and the calling of God. How many churches have you seen go on for several generations that did not pass from father to son? To be able to get where God is calling us, we have to consider a passage from Luke 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if there's enough money to complete it? The Bible encourages us to count the cost. 
If he lays the foundation and he's not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Suppose a king is about to go to war or decide that God has called them to do ministry somewhere. The pastors in this church said, do not do that. Say, well, God has called me. No, God called you to be a pillar and you said so. We were all there. Well, I just can't deny the call of God. Well, now they're not here. They're with the Lord and that's good, but they're not here. They didn't complete what God called them to do. Nobody talks about these things because they have no conviction. They just pretend like everything was okay. My own father did not complete what God called him to do and in God's mercy he took him home early. Because if he had continued going down the road he was going, he would have missed the kingdom altogether. So, well, he loved the Lord, he was attending church. That's got nothing to do with producing what God intended your life to produce. That's what's at stake here. He has something he wants your life to produce, something in your field he wants to come out of, and you don't get to choose that. He does. And you must be faithful to it. And we're happy anytime someone makes the kingdom of God, because it's better than the alternative. But the truth is, there's really three options. You can be wicked and God remove you from the face of the earth because you're wicked. Or you can complete all of your God-ordained work in your generation and go home. Or in His mercy, He can cut short your life and you love Him and He loves you and He receives you into the kingdom, but the work He gave you to do went undone and somebody else must do it. I don't want the first or the third option. No. Because the first and the third option have eternal consequences, even if it's not salvation. You're going to stand next to David who completed all of his work for eternity and say, no, I just chose something else. I chose what I wanted to do. No, we have to elevate. Look, he'll love you, but you can't elevate your priesthood like that. Tonight, we're going to be in Numbers 25. I will be done in time for us to worship for more than an hour into the new year. You'll have words, but this is my last sermon to you as your pastor. From here on out, I will be an advisor to your pastors. So I plan to take full advantage of it. Numbers 25. If you have a Bible and you are in a place that you can see it, we are going to remain here and I will just refer to other things. While Israel was in Shittim, See, I'm maturing all of the time. (laughs) The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Notice that the scripture says the men. Somebody say, the men. The men. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I think it's even worse in the original language. Let me show you the word. Ohad, say that word. Man. Oh, I got it perfect. A verb meaning to fornicate, to prostitute. It is typically used for women. I thought it was the men who did this. I want you to understand something. We are talking about the men going after prostitutes. But the way the Bible describes it is as if the man was the prostitute. When we are unfaithful to the Lord because of some desire that we have, and we go after that desire, it's not about us gratifying our desire, it's about a demonic power having his way with us, like the demonic power was using us as a prostitute. 
In the Bible, Israel is the bride of God. And here, the language indicates that she is acting like a prostitute. The men thought they were going to a prostitute, but the truth is they were acting like a prostitute. Which begs the question, when you read this, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Where are the leaders? Where are the leaders in all of this? <coughs> Don't just think the leaders as in the chief priests. Don't just think the leaders as in the Levites. Where are the leaders of the tribes? Where are the leaders of the clans? Where are the leaders of the families? Where are the home leaders? How does something like this happen? Look at verse 2. Who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. Forty years earlier they had received a warning about this. We'll preach about it Sunday. They'll preach about it Sunday. Exodus 34 warns them against this very practice. Look at verse 3. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. What's verse 3 say? What's the first two words? So Israel. I thought it was just the men. No, now the language being used suggests the nation. Leaders of your homes. Leaders cause others to follow. If you allow something... At one level, it always becomes more pervasive. This is dangerous. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Joined is kind of an innocuous word. I wanted to show it to you in Hebrew. Ohad, say that for me. It's amen. A verb meaning to join. Amen. They got it right. To yoke. In the Bible, a yoke has to do with take on a way of life, which interestingly enough, you see underlined in the definition, Israel was becoming like Baal. They were being used by Baal as the prostitute, and they were becoming like their new love. That is dangerous, don't you think? Yes. In a physical sense, it refers to an object being tied to or fastened to another. God's bride was being tied or fastened to and becoming like something that was demonic and worldly. The way the Masoretic text says is Israel attached to Baal. Verse 1, I told you, said the man, and verse 3 said Israel. The pervasive nature of what is happening took time. It didn't start here. Israel didn't go in mass all at once and go do this. It had to start somewhere else. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. Somebody say that's harsh. Of course, if it turns the Lord's anger away from his bride, who was acting like a prostitute and becoming like a demonic entity, and was physically, picture it, tied to Baal. 
It's not that harsh. The Greek version of this doesn't say take all the leaders of these people. It says take the heads of the people. Which again indicates leaders. The Hebrew is something like Rosh Ha'am. Rosh meaning head. Am meaning peoples. I'm only pointing out that God held the leaders responsible for what the nation was doing. The specific kind of death that the NIV says kill them and expose them. This is a Hebrew word. Ohad, say that one for me. Hokah. To be dislocated or to be alienated is one of the possible definitions. These leaders need to be dislocated from my body. Of course, another possible definition. Exposure by impaling. I want you to stab them with a stick and put them as a sign for people to see. The last possible, and the way that many of your footnotes say it, is hang them. But when a Westerner hears the word hang, you think a noose in a Western style thing. No, no. Put them on a stick as a sign for everyone to see. If the leaders allow this, then they need to die, and everybody needs to see them die, and they need to be a warning to all. Can somebody say the stakes are high? <laughs> Not broad daylight. Our Bible says broad daylight. The Hebrew says face them towards the sun. In other words, put them on a stick, make sure everybody sees it, and no shadow covering them, expose them out in the light. Everybody got the picture of how dire this is? Yeah. Clearly I didn't want to talk to you about methods of execution in my last sermon. Let's go to verse 5. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. I have read this passage for 26 years, and because of my love for Moses, I have overlooked something. Because I esteem Moses as maybe the second greatest man in the Bible, I never noticed something. Which is the same thing that happens to us. We love each other, so we overlook the condition of somebody's heart. We ascribe to them better qualities than are there in that moment. We think people are either lost or saved, and if they're saved, they're good. This is a mistake. Because I missed something that was going on inside of Moses for 26 years. Is what God said, put to death those of your men who did this? Or did God say, take all the leaders of the people? That's what God said, been modified slightly. I didn't want to think Moses could do that. I did word studies on this for weeks before I presented it to the pastors and then the elders. Because in my mind, Moses doesn't do things like this. Then I got to thinking, in my own life, what has caused me to take a word that God gave me and just modify it ever so slightly? Could it have been that Moses reasoned that God probably meant kill the men who committed this action? Surely God would never say kill men who didn't actually do it. Could it have been that he reasoned that? 
I've often heard God say something, read that God said something, and then tried to figure out what he meant. Of course, that overlooks the fact that tribal clan or family leaders were responsible for the behavior of the men that worked for them, that were under them. It overlooks it. You remember our study on Sunday of the book of Malachi? Yes. I won't go back through that with you, but I do want to show you a picture. We showed you this on Sunday. God indicts the priest in the book of Malachi. He indicts the priests because they showed contempt for him. They didn't understand how they showed contempt for him, so he explained it to them. You treat my work like as a burden, and you accept less than the best from the people, and God took it personally. Well, how does he feel like a husband that accepts less than his wife's best then? How does he feel about parents that accept less than their children's best? How does he feel about anybody who considers his standards just too harsh, and so they want to modify it a little bit. See, the salvation of the world is at stake in the priesthood of the people. It's at stake. When the difficulty of God's standard is seen as a burden, it offends it. When we modify the specifics of God's standard in an effort to be compassionate, it offends God. i got to tell you one of the hardest things as a pastor is looking at a man that's old enough to be my father and correct him about something that shouldn't be in anybody's life after the first year in Christ. But the truth is, all of us have things in our life that shouldn't have been there from the moment we got saved. And God requires it. He said through Paul to Titus, you must teach sound doctrine and what is in accordance. And then the first group that he hits, teach the older men. And then he lists five things for them. Why did Paul have to tell Titus that? Because he didn't want to. He tells Timothy the same thing. When we give each other a pass, when we start to let standards slip because we love each other and we're pretty sure they're good, I mean, got to work it out all in all. Sin becomes pervasive. Moses didn't realize what he was doing, I'm sure, anymore then I realize the consequences of the times that I've done it. But I promise, God will keep plowing the soil of your heart and cultivating it until it comes full circle. I can tell you the difficulties of the last few years in my life weren't born out of the last few years. They were born of things I didn't tend to ten years ago. And the Lord loved me ten years ago. He loves me today. And he's going to love me 10 years from now because he's elevating the priesthood. You know what's better than just elevating the priesthood? Purifying it. So what did Moses do wrong? Well, he modified God's word. But why did he do it? We haven't really hit hit that yet. It's the same reason that we do it. Did you know that these people in this chapter are called Midianites and Moabites. See, Midian and Moab had stopped being distinct. Moab had a habit of seducing other nations. Midian, at one time, had a priest in it named Jethro. It's where Moses got his wife. By the end of this chapter, God treats the Midianites exactly as enemies like the Moabites. But what was this like for Moses? He had a Midianite wife, so maybe when he saw a man... Go to a Midianite woman, he thought, who am I? I mean, I also have had 
these kind of issues in my life. Does Moses represent himself or does he represent God? Have you ever had a weakness, a sin, an insecurity, a fear, or an outright failure? And because of it, you did not address in your brothers something in their life, feeling yourself unfit. You don't represent you. You represent God. Amen. Say, oh, but I got to get the speck out of my, or the, the, the log out of my eye so I can get to the speck in the hairs. Friends, what this is talking about is cultivating your soil so that you can see both of your eyes correctly. It doesn't mean that you, neither one, strive for the aim of God. Of course, Moses didn't just have a Midianite wife. Anybody ever read Numbers 12 1? He had a Cushite wife. There was all kind of controversy. His own brother and his own sister turned on him. Do you think maybe when Moses saw men compromising in this area, he's like, will it really hurt my feelings when others challenged my choice? I just don't want to do that. I don't know. But it's possible. I know many times when you've had a painful experience, you don't want to face a similar situation in somebody else. When you didn't do well in a situation, you don't want to face that situation in them. He'll still love you, but you can't elevate your priesthood like that. He wants to purify us. He doesn't want to protect us from difficulty. But you know, I still don't think that's what it was. The more I thought about this, the more I'm convinced that what happens in Numbers 20 is the issue. Do you remember anything about Numbers 20? See, early on in Moses' ministry, God had spoken to him. And he said, I want you to go strike a rock. And Moses went and struck that rock. And man, all the people got water. Of course, Moses was about 80 years old. He was full of vigor. In his 40s, he killed an Egyptian because something was wrong. And he went after it. At 80, God said, do it. And man, he stepped up and he got it done. Now he's almost 120. And in Numbers 20, God says, I want you to go speak to the rock. Moses is angry. He's angry about the failures of the people. He's angry about the wandering in the desert. So Moses strikes the rock twice. He got corrected by the Lord for that. It was said that he would not enter into the promised land, neither he nor Aaron who stood with him while he did it and gave approval to what he did. Do you think maybe Moses is standing here going, you know, I was too harsh before I was more harsh than what God said. I'd like to err on the side of being more balanced with what God said. Man, do you like it in a sporting event when a referee does a makeup call? No, he's just perverted the standard twice. But haven't you done that? Haven't you gotten it wrong by being too compassionate so the next time you tried to correct by being hard? Haven't you been too hard one time so you tried to correct the next time by being too soft? My gut tells me that's what's happening here with Moses. Or maybe it's just that he's 120 years old and he's sick of having to fight with this kind of stuff. I don't know. Or it occurred to me that in Numbers 21, his brother died. Maybe he's just grieving over the loss of his brother. 
Or maybe he just felt responsible for letting it go so long that he felt like he couldn't now correct it. Does it matter why he modified God's word or does it matter that he did? He did. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter why you modify what God has said to you. It just matters that you do. Because it causes a plague. It causes people to die. Maybe not today. Maybe you can't see it, but anytime you have ever modified what God said to do, I promise there are consequences that you could not foresee. He loved you when you did it. He loves you while He's curing it. And He will love you through the correction of it. But you can't avoid it. This proves something to me. And remember, I was teaching this to the pastors and then to the elders. Any breakdown in your home, any, will show up on the battlefield later. So when you look at your relatives, when you look at your children, when you look at your spouse, understand every problem that you see in the way that you deal with them, it originated in you. It originated with not cultivating your soil to receive the word, not letting God breathe on it. If your relatives are a bad influence on you, that's your fault. If you don't lead your wife correctly, that's your fault. If parents are not leading their children correctly, that's the parent's fault. It's not that you have a bad child. It falls on you. God held the leaders responsible. Moses wanted to hold only the men who did it responsible. We like to punish obvious sin and let the sin that is uncultivated, it's not revealed, it's still under the surface of the soil of our heart, just go. You can't. These messages were connected. They're still connected. God wants you to cultivate the soil of your heart because He wants to conceive something in you. He wants to conceive something in you because He is calling us to go from one level of priesthood to another. Now He's talking to us about purifying the priesthood because He wants to perpetuate a pure priesthood forever. Can we go to verse 6? Then an Israelite man brought to his family. To whom? His family. How did this go? Hey, honey, honey, kids, mother, father, uncle... Aunt, I got them all by whore. Actually, I'm the whore. How long did this have to go on? How bad did it have to be for a man to walk in broad daylight into his own family's dwelling and present his whoredom to his family and they didn't and he didn't expect to be rebuked? Understand that sin never stays where it starts. It's pervasive. An area of compromise, an area of folding the hands, letting the weed grow, letting the rock remain there, it won't stay just there. It'll grow to the place that it threatens your very existence. And when you do correct it, there may be no way to avoid the consequence from it. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
The Bible ascribes Israel to sin and then says Israel is weeping. Man, don't we see that? I am sorry over the sin. I am sorry over the sin. I am sorry over the sin while the sin is continuing. Weeping does us no good while sin is continuing. Weeping is only good in that it gets you to change your mind and your direction immediately. Romans 1.32 literally says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. God is not just concerned with what's being done. He's concerned of who approves of it by doing nothing. How important is it to have a priesthood? How important is it to have a pure priesthood? You know, it would be easy to say, but Moses loved the Lord. And he did. Moses loved the Lord more than most of you love the Lord. Moses spoke to the Lord face to face. In Exodus 33, 11, he says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So was it a lack of relationship with the Lord? No. Was it that Moses didn't know the word? No. I want to emphasize to you that at this time in Israel's history, at night there was a giant pillar of fire of God's presence. In the daytime, right outside the tent that this man's walking into, there is a giant cloud with God's presence. Not only did Moses allow things to get here, he modified God's solution to fix the things once they got here. This broke my heart, and I missed it for 26 years because I love Moses. If it's not that Moses didn't love the Lord, if it's not that Moses didn't know the word, then what is it? What's the same thing that happens to you? You love the Lord. You have His presence among you. You know the Word. But you begin to accept something that you know is not pure. Because you know you're not pure. Then it's the wrong direction. We have to cultivate righteousness in us. We have to aim at God's standard. Not our standard. You cannot modify what God says. Every Christian agrees with that, but we don't do it. You know that the word says to rebuke an elder publicly? It's not a private affair. You know, we've skipped on that many times. Every time our church has gotten in trouble, it's because I've modified the word. Every time. I own that. Every time there's been a significant problem in my family, it's because I left something unattended to. I modified it. It falls on me. And he hurts, holds the other person responsible too. See, if we will take responsibility for our level of ministry, then God can elevate us to higher levels of ministry. As long as we act like something strange is happening and who could know and, well, it just happens. Or as one pastor said in his uh, youthful mistake, well, ministry is just messy. 
God's ministry is not. I want you to notice something. In the verse we're about to read, Moses is not the one who takes action. Eleazar is the high priest, and he is not the one who takes action. Joshua is there. Joshua walked around with a spear most of the Bible. He's there, and he is not the one who acts. All of those men were doing something. They were weeping when they should have been walking. So it's good to be broken over sin. It's better to do something about it. So when my heart is broken over this, that's only as good as it moves you to action. We are talking about cultivating the soil of our heart because we want change. We want growth. We're talking about God conceiving something in that soil because we know only He can bring it and only He can do it. We're talking about raising and elevating a level of ministry because that's His aim for us and we want to be His treasured possession. Let's pick up in verse 7. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, when he saw it, he left the assembly. Took a spear in his hand. How did God say to kill him? Impale him. Benny has got an impaling instrument. He took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them. Through the Israelite and into the woman's body. The plague, then the plague against Israel was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered... 24,000. Can you say that the cost of sin is high? Do you think each Israelite who became a whore knew that it would cost 24,000 lives? Phinehas impaled them. The specific wording is a little more specific. Through their sexual organs. The very thing that they sinned by is the thing that they died by. Man, tell me that message doesn't need to be preached. I want you to remember something. Phinehas is not the prophet to the nation. And we depend on great men of God. But God depends on all men being devoted to Him. Not just the great men of God. Phinehas was not the high priest. Eleazar was. Phinehas was not the next leader of the nation. Joshua was. Phinehas was just in training to be a priest. Phinehas was like you. Of course, when I think about this, I realize that for Aaron's life, much of it was in Egypt and he wasn't a priest. And he brought a lot of baggage into the priesthood. The Bible doesn't tell us all of it. But you know it's there. You see him compromised several times. And Eleazar, his son, he was born after Aaron became a priest. So he saw his dad get converted, which is great, but he also was shaped by a dad who was not really a priest yet. Of course, Phinehas was born after Eleazar was a priest. Phinehas had never known compromise. Phinehas had never married the Midianite, married the Cushite, had never struck the rock when he was supposed to. Phinehas didn't have that in his life. So when God spoke, he didn't hesitate to act. 
He wasn't calculating his own weakness. He wasn't looking at what his life was about. He was concerned for one thing and one thing only. Reverence for God's name. If you're going to elevate your priesthood, if you're going to purify it, you have to elevate your reverence for God's name above what you think of yourself, whether good or bad. You have to elevate it above everything. Phinehas stopped the plague that Moses compromised and the leaders compromised allowed. After 18 years, whatever I have to give you, you have. If I hang on and I fight for a position and a place, but I wouldn't have to fight with anybody except my own sinful nature. Where's room for Phinehas? We're looking for the next generation who is zealous for God's name. And I'm going to tell you, I've been pretty zealous for his name. More zealous than most. But God's elevating the priesthood. And he wants more. He deserves more. He needs the whole field. Think about your level of priesthood. How much priesthood do you demonstrate with your spouse, with your children, with your relatives? Do you need to purify it? Don't we need to purify the priesthood? Yes. Yes. Don't we need to cure the curse of the people? Because the priest's apathy, the priest's compromise, and the priest's indifference is why there was a plague on the people. He said, no, it was the people's actions. The priests are supposed to turn them from it. That's right. Lamentations 2 says in the 14th verse, the visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off captivity. The reason the people of God went into captivity is the priest had not been purified. What's at stake here? We all need to elevate our priesthood and we need to purify it or else captivity occurs all around us. Hosea 5 puts it bluntly. Hear this, you priest. Pay attention, you Israelites, you princes with God. Listen, O royal or kingly house. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mizpah, a, a net spread out on Tabor. The rebels are deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. A spirit of prostitution is in their hearts. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Why do we have to cultivate our hearts? Because when the priest's actions are not representative of God consistently, continually, perpetually then the actions of the priests prevent the people from turning to God. So, well, I I don't know that I'm a priest. If you're a 10-year-old and have a 5-year-old brother, I promise you're a priest. Damn, he wants to be just like you. I don't don't feel like I really have a ministry. You got children, you got a ministry. You got spouse, you got a ministry. So I'm just single in the church. I promise there are people in the church that you're behavior influences. We need to purify the priesthood. But who am I to hurt their feelings? Who am I to do that? You represent God. 
He purchased yeah. you as a field. And He saw treasure in it. Now you need to treasure it enough to become what He's called you to be. Verse 10 tells us what the Lord says to Moses. Now, I want you to know the last time God said something to Moses, he didn't report it accurately. But he gets this one right. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Oh my God, that that could be said. Moses didn't do it. Joshua didn't do it. Eleazar didn't do it. None of the tribal leaders did it. Phinehas, a trainee, did it. Don't tell me that your position's not high enough, that your influence is not high enough. Come to grips with the fact that your reverence for God is what is lacking. The only thing that I wish to leave this congregation with is a greater fear and reverence for God. Because that will get you everything else you ever needed. In the group of men that I was born again with and around, I am one of a handful standing. There was once a group as large as this one, almost every called to ministry, and they are destroyed and decimated. Weeds have choked them out. Oh, they still say they love the Lord, but they have not accomplished what they were called to do, and they lie to themselves about it. Where is Phinehas? Where is a man zealous for God? Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am. And what, is, what does God tell Moses his name is? I am that I am. He was as zealous as the I am that I am. He doesn't say that. But it's kind of implied. It's an interesting thing. He represented God like God wants to be represented. He cared. He cared about the detail. He cared about the image and preserving knowledge of God. What do you care about? Verse 12. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting or perpetual priesthood. Pastors, you want to raise up disciples? Then raise up disciples? You better take care how you raise them up then. What you permit in the first generation will be so pervasive in the second that it destroys it all. Parents, you want children that go further than you? You better be careful what you permit. Because it will become more pervasive in your kid than it was in you. God wants to perpetuate a purified priesthood. My father barely knew the Lord, but he did. At least one of the two fathers that I had. It benefited me. But the areas of flaw in his life also showed up in mine. And I multiplied them. My children came along after I was born again. And that has benefited them, but I dropped things into the kingdom that I've not yet been able to cultivate out of my life and it affected them. No parent likes to look at that, but it's true. Now they have children. They are a more cultivated version of what I was. 
They have my flaws, but they have far more strengths. What will their children be like? God wants to perpetuate a purified priesthood. Not a putrid priesthood. Phinehas was as jealous for God's name as God was. That's saying something. How many times will you ever meet anybody that cares as much about your name as you do? And yet that's what it means to be a bride, isn't it, ladies? Yes. You take the name of your husband and it becomes your name and you reflect him and him only. We are the bride of God. We have to be zealous for his name. We can speak of elevating the priesthood, but the only kind that he'll elevate and perpetuate is the one that reflects him rightly. The others that are multiplying without doing that are not being multiplied by the Lord. They are weeds growing in a field. I don't want to keep focusing on the perpetual priesthood because that is now the work of these pastors. For now, let's focus on something else. Have the messages on cultivating, on conception, on moving from Cohen to Chief Cohenine, have they left you weeping at times? Were some of you really hurt by them? Weeping is only good if it turns into walking. If you sit and weep, over your condition but do nothing about it, that weeping will be a testimony against you. You knew it was wrong and didn't cure it. If your weeping causes you to go, the Spirit of the Lord is calling me higher. He is purifying me. And I must, I will, I have to rain on me, God, because I'm going. Well, then He will perpetuate you while He elevates you. Turn your weeping into walking. My admonition for this church is grow in your reverence for God because you've been given more than most. And more is required of you than most. And you can't see that as a burden. You have to see it as a great joy. You get to perpetuate a greater image of God. You get to minister at a higher level. I get to travel to churches everywhere, even churches birthed from this one. They're in the process of this. You've had 18 years to come to maturity. And honestly, most of the churches want to do it faster. I welcome them to try. I'm going to help them. They won't do it faster, but they will do it better. They won't do it faster, but they will do it with less mistakes. They won't do it faster, but they will do it more effectively. Speed is not the goal. Purity is the goal. I want to finish this passage and bring to a closing remark and then move into worship. I hope you know that you don't say these kind of things to people that you don't love. There's a woman yelling at me in the parking lot not a couple hours ago. I didn't say much to her because I genuinely just don't care very much about her. We're going to elevate our priesthood, though. We're going to purify it. 
I mean, her gums were bouncing, but my ears just weren't happening. I have a son who's better than me, and he stepped in and handled it. He said, man, we've heard you, and we're going to work on it. It's okay. You can go back to your home now. I was like... <laughs> That's why there's a better priesthood here now. Now that I'm an elder, I can get away with just saying what's on my mind. <laughs> Verse 14. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of the Simeonite family. Simeon is one who hears from God. The Simeonite tribe is huge. This was a leader who did this. Why kill the leaders? Because the leaders allowed the people and the leaders imitated the people. How bad does it have to be for a leader to do this in front of his family? And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Bill Cosby. I want to make sure you're reading with me. It's Cosby. Not Bill Cosby, but Cosby. You only recently found out the Cosby family had problems. That's because you hadn't been reading your Bible. No Quaylutes were involved in this one. Daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. I want you to get something. Cosby put herself out there. Because if a desire could be cultivated for something other than the purity of God's name, the enemy knew that Israel would become the whore being used by Baal. The enemy is not tempting you to gratify your desires. Your desires for a worry-free life, for a life free from the need for provision. The enemy is not tempting you with desires for those things. He's tempting you to become a whore so that you become more like him. He's, he's tempting you actually to prostitution. The reason we cultivate our soil is it's the only way to get a pure plant. It's the only way to get a pure produce. Everything else threatens that purity. In fact, purity means unmixed with any other matter. How pure is your devotion? Is it mixed with rocks? Is it mixed with weeds? Is it mixed with thorns? Do you have a love for the Lord, but also a love for many other things? Might be Cosby just trying to get you to play the harlot. Cultivate your soil. Use the word to press out of you desires for things not described in the word. Use the word to choke the life out of all of its competitors. So I just can't. Well, you can put it in your heart and put it in your heart and position your life and pray and the Lord will do it for you. Amen. He'll conceive purity in you. We need a purified priesthood. That's what God wants to perpetuate. I would tell you to evaluate your children. Evaluate your spouse. Evaluate your own walk. Do it in that order. It's easier to see flaws in other people. Start at the outer circle. 
and look at what is there and move inward. And whatever you found in the outer circle, assume it's in the soil of your heart. That's a good place to start. As you do that, then you become more and more fit to help others in the church evaluate theirs. We are going to need each other to elevate the priesthood, to purify the priesthood, and to perpetuate it. Your purity, personally, can bleed over to your family. Charles Spurgeon said, A father's righteous life is the inheritance of his son. Amen. Your purity will affect them. It's not only sin that's pervasive. Your purity will affect them. And your family's purity, it will extend, extend to your church. I don't know about that. I want you to understand. I've been very transparent with you. But also all of you are sitting here because of a pure work God did in our lives. What you do matters. The convictions that you cultivate matter. The extent to which you stand without wavering, it matters. And it matters to people you don't know. Well, how could that be? Well, I met one of the young men I'm staring at at a coffee shop, but I never shared Jesus with him. I never. Somebody that I met, of somebody that I met, of somebody that I met did, and he's standing here tonight. You have no idea how pervasive sin can be or how far purity can be extended. But it starts with the choices that you make. This church has never been in a better position as far as pastors. These men are the finest that I know. Jennifer and I will remain advisors, grandparents to the church. But you are in these pastors' hands. And they are of better hands. We ask you to continue to pray for us as we figure out how to help other pastors pastor their flocks. And all of them came from us. Like most elevations in ministry. Well, I told you our knees were shaking together while we prayed about it. We're terrified that we don't have what it takes. Like Moses, we are sure that all of the problems in our own lives are reasons that we're not fit to help the Hutchinsons. We're not fit to help the Treasters. We're sure of all of those things. But a great zeal for God's name says to hell with all that, I'm going to do it anyway. I represent Him. I'm suggesting that you take the same attitude. Amen. It's about reverence for His name more than any other thing. Peyton, would you come here and pastors, you close any way that you feel that. Let's go ahead and have the whole worship team come up. I couldn't be more honored to be in ministry with Pastor Eric and Pastor Wade. Elder Eric and Pastor Wade. <laughs> It's not 12 o'clock yet. (laughs) 
think it goes without saying that the Stevens family has not only laid a foundation that our lives are being built on, they've set a model, an example for us to emulate. And by the same Spirit of God at work in them and at work in us, we can achieve it. As we begin to enter the worship, I want us to rightly respond to this word in a variety of ways. One is, when all of the events tonight are over and we're fellowshipping, make sure you don't leave without giving a hug to Eric and Jen and tell them thank you. Thank you for their special devotion that has set the bar for us all Thank you for their pastoring that will bless us from generation to generation. But lastly, the greatest way that you can thank the Stevens family is purify your priesthood. The greatest way you can thank the Stevens is to elevate your priesthood. The gift that they have is that they see more potential in you than you see within yourself. And you got to live up to it. You don't run from it. By doing that, you will cultivate your heart, not just for you, but for the generations that come after you. Because the good soil that you cultivate in your heart that produces 30, 60, and 100 fold, that will exponentially increase in the next generation after you. So we're going to remove what is a contaminant to our priesthood. We're going to elevate our priesthood to the level that God has called us to, that high priest level. And we're going to cultivate out of our heart the trodden path, the rocks, and the weeds. And we're going to produce an abundance of fruit. This is a great privilege for us. Somebody say privilege. Privilege. It is a great privilege for you to be at LCM. It is a great privilege for you to be at New Life Ministries. It is a great privilege for you to be at a remnant church. What the Lord is asking us to do cannot be looked at as a burden. This is a transition time. This is an important time in our church. And we have the privilege of being here. This is a joyous moment. We're going to begin to pray as we transition into worship. See, but you elevating your priesthood, you purifying your priesthood is not something that we can do for you. It's something that the Lord is demanding from us, encouraging us, and lifting us towards. Come on, lift your hands right now. Mighty God, we thank you that you are elevating your great priesthood in our hearts. Lord, may we have a greater reverence for your name and your name only. That there's nothing that we will place above you. That there's nothing that we will place above your word that has been claimed upon and overshadowed by 